Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, we're going to begin in chapter 10 and go into chapter 11. If you don't have your Bibles, there should be one in front of you. I encourage you to turn to it so that you may truly see that these things are the Word of God. If you are new to us, then you will quickly find out that our practice is to preach through whole books of the Bible so that you wouldn't just hear what I want you to hear, but that you would hear what God would want you to hear from His Holy Word. Going back to chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 9 in this vision that was given to the Apostle Peter. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down on its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And he said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have said. So he invited them in to be his guest. As you remember from last week, he goes and there preaches the good news of the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles at the end of chapter 10. Now chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began to explain to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. In a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered this man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on one of us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand 
in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. If you were born in the United States, you did not need to apply for citizenship. Rather, citizenship was applied to you at your birth. But those that were not know quite a different path and journey. It's the path of immigration. Now, to be honest, being born here in the United States, I was quite ignorant to it all and still am to a large degree. But over time, I've become a little bit more knowledgeable with some of our immigrants that are amongst us and members here. And through them, I've learned about the the paperwork and the bureaucracy and the cost and the timeline and the various levels of visa and green card and maybe just maybe citizenship. Now, I'm not saying that this process is not necessary, but when you understand the hassle and the hoops that need to be jumped through, then you understand why illegal immigration is such a problem in our country. Because to be legal, it's a painfully slow and arduous process. It's like a root canal that never ends. But as difficult as that is, and it is, just again, speak to some of our brothers and sisters that are undergoing it, it still pales in comparison to Gentiles being included in the people of God. At least with immigration, there is a process. Not a great one, but there is at least one. But for the Gentile people, in the old covenant, there was no process of becoming Jewish. Either you were a Jew or you were not a Jew. And to be a Jew... You had to be born a Jew. And there was really no other way. Now that was not God's plan. That was not God's intention. In fact, we'll see that was actually a perversion of what God had commanded. But that's essentially how it became for the Jewish people and how it was enforced. It was extreme exclusivity, which fueled extreme prejudice from the Jewish people to the Gentiles. But we know from the rest of Scripture, from the revelation of God, from the beginning of time, God is the God of all creation, which means He's the God of all nations. His plan was never to just be known in Israel. Rather, He was to be known and is to be known to the ends of the earth. All tribes, tongues, nations are to give great praise to our God. But for that to happen, there had to be, must be, a radical shift in the church. And that is exactly what the Lord does. In a portion of passage that we began looking at last week, the Lord bringing the gospel message through the apostle Peter to Cornelius, a centurion soldier, a Roman In other words, a Gentile. And today we look at that vision that Peter had that gives the explanation of what was to take place 
the explanation that he also is to give to the church in Jerusalem of the expansion of God's kingdom to the ends of the known world. And we'll see that in three points this morning. The, the will of God, the awakening of God, and finally, the welcome of God. First, the, the will of God. To say that chapter in 10 and chapter 11 of this book is a significant chapter or chapters is truly an understatement. One commentator even goes as far to say that this is the, the most important chapters in the entirety of the Bible. Now, I don't know if I would go that far, but I would say it's definitely top five because it's a seismic shift in the plan of redemption. And I tell you it's important, and, and Luke wants you to know it's important for primarily two reasons. First, it begins with this angelic visitation, as we looked at last week. We know that angels don't show up on a regular basis or on a weekly basis throughout the Bible. It's only on significant events, redemption-altering events. And here we have one of them. So that tells us that this is important. But second, we know that this story is repeated several times, several times in the last chapters. In fact, Cornelius' vision is repeated in whole or in part four times in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And then Peter's vision is, is told in part or whole three times in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And then he alludes to it in chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council. In fact, it's told so often that you might say, oh, okay, I got it. I, I, I read that already. But it's a red light that is telling us that this is important. But the question to us might be, well, why is this so important. And that's what we want to look at this morning. And so go back with me into chapter 10 to that vision that Peter has to explain this important event. You remember while the Lord was preparing Cornelius to meet Peter, so the Lord was preparing Peter to meet Cornelius. Because that's not something that would have happened naturally. Why? Because Peter was a Jew Cornelius was a Gentile. And so the Lord sends him this vision. Now the vision seems a, a little bit strange. We read of Peter being at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. Went up onto the housetop. Remember, at that time, housetops were, were flat. They were not pitched. So don't think that he was going up onto the, the peak of the roof to do his prayer time. Don't do that. Don't follow Peter's example. If your rooftop is peaked, okay. Um, he went there though to pray. And it was the, the sixth hour. It was high noon. It was the set time of prayer. And being around lunchtime it says that he became hungry. And he wanted something to eat, perhaps even he might have been fasting up to that point. And that little tidbit is very important. Why? Because what do we see in this vision? Well, we see these animals on a, on a sheet being lowered down from heaven. And we have this voice that says, rise, kill, and eat. 
which is Robbie Hines' life verse, I think. <laughs> it's like manna or, or quail that was just coming out of heaven, or perhaps to put it in 21st century terms, it was like a, a heavenly door dash that was being sent right down to Peter so that he could eat because he was hungry. And yet, there was a very big problem. The animals in that sheet were not good for eating. Now, when I say that, I, I don't mean that they weren't just Peter's preference, that, that, that Peter wanted something different. It's not like Peter was saying, you know what, I'm kind of a little bit more of a, a, a white meat, chicken breast kind of guy. You know, Lord, could you just send me a, a number three with lemonade? That's what I prefer. Or I'm, I'm a vegetarian, I, I don't eat meat. No, it had nothing to do with preference. Rather, it had everything to do with precept. See, as a Jew, he was forbidden by the ceremonial law to eat these types of animals. Now, the, the most familiar that I'm sure you would recognize, that which was forbidden to eat, was that of pork. That which is a southern staple here in the, the south, a, a pulled pork barbecued sandwich Peter would not have been able to have as a, a Jew. Now, you might ask why were, were certain foods allowed and certain, certain foods forbidden? Why some and not others? Now, there's a lot of explanation that could be given on that, but I think the most sufficient one is that God told them which foods to eat and which foods not to eat. Similar in the same way that God did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember that God gave them all of the trees that they could eat and take fruit from? But there was one tree in particular that they could not eat. Now, what made that one tree different from all the others? Well, there's only one reason, and that was God's prohibition. God said, no. God said, you cannot eat of that tree. And so in the same way, the Jews were able to eat of all types of food, but there was certain food that they were not to eat. And this was a part of God's plan for the, the Israel, for, for, for the Jews to live differently than the world. They were to keep themselves separated from the world. The Israelites were, were not to live like the nations. They were not to do what the nations did. They were to live holy lives, separate lives. Not much different than what we are called to do as Christians as well. In fact, James tells us in James 1 verse 27 that we're to keep ourselves unstained from the world. But the problem that came about is that the Jews took what was commanded and made it purely external. They took what was spiritual and made it physical. What is not seen, they made very much seen and said, if, if I remove myself from these things, then I can remain pure and holy. And the wrong concept often still remains to this very day. You can think of the idea of monasticism. If I retreat from the world, 
if I go into a holy bubble, then I will be holy. Or perhaps you can think of the Amish community. That if we remove ourselves from society, if we're exclusive, then we can exclude these things that are are modern. And we'll be able to remove that which is bad and and corrupt so that we won't become bad and and corrupted. Or perhaps to, to get a little closer to home, some of you grew up in some fundamental homes. An idea if we if we remove the TV, if we remove internet or, or secular music or, or dancing, or if we have our men wear certain clothes and our women wear other types of clothes, then the, the world and the flesh and the devil can't get to us. Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some exclusion to the things of the world. There absolutely must be. But we cannot put an emphasis on things just purely, externally. Because to do so is literally to to miss the heart of the matter. Jesus tried to correct this type of thinking. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 15. Jesus tries to, to help those that were listening to him to understand this aspect that you can't just purely put the emphasis on the external. You actually have to put emphasis on the internal. And we see this in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 10. He says, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of a mouth that defiles a person. Well, the disciples came to him and said that the the Pharisees were offended by what you were saying. Now, I oftentimes wonder if, if it really was the Pharisees that were the only ones offended. Now, I know the Pharisees were offended, but I wonder if the disciples were offended at what Jesus said. And so, basically, Jesus says, well, leave the Pharisees alone. And then Peter, being the, the, the big mouth, says, well, I don't think I really understand. Can you explain this parable to us, Jesus? And Jesus says, do you not understand? Verse 17, do you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I think you all can understand the the biology of that, so we don't need to explain. But he goes on to say, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thought, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slanders. These are what defile a person. You see what Jesus is saying there? It's not that those things are out there. No, those things are in here. And therefore, they are acted out upon. And so to exclude the heart is to exclude the heart of the matter. And so it's the the will of God is for him to have our hearts. And from that heart comes the, the life change that is needed. And that is a a great reminder for us. It's a great reminder for, for our children as well and, and our parenting of our children that we're not just looking for behavioral change. No, we're looking for heart change because heart change produces joyful life change. But heartless change produces soulless, loveless duty. You can think of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother, quote unquote, did the right thing, but he did not do so out of love 
for the Father. No, he rather did so for duty's sake. He had love of obedience, and he did it for obedience's sake. He really just prided himself in not being like the younger brother, not being the prodigal. And we need to understand that because if you don't think that is you, then then you need to check your heart. Because I tell you that it is. It's in all of us. Too often we can think, well, if, if if I do X... Or if I, I don't do Y, then that means Z. That means this. And that's not always the equation that we can ultimately equate, can we? And oftentimes those doing or not doing are things that we take as, as badges of honor. They become like merit badges if you're in Boy Scouts or, or Girl Scouts. We need to be reminded that it's, it's not our merit, is it? It makes us anything. It's, it's Christ's merit and, and his alone. And so we are to do what is right and not do what is wrong, but we do so for Christ's sake, not for looking good's sake, not for pride's sake. So we can say, look at me, look what I've done and look what I've not done. So that makes me this. No, Christ makes us this. Christ makes us that. And that's all that truly matters. Well, The Jews had done something similar with excluding themselves from the nations, the nations being the the Gentiles. And it was a a wholesale exclusion. It's similar to, to what we do when we say to our children, don't talk to strangers. Now, why do we do that? Most strangers are are quite nice, quite friendly even and would do no harm to our children. But there are a few that would do harm. And I don't know if you could put a percentage on it, but for analogy's sake, let's put a percentage on it. Let's say 98% of strangers are wonderful people, are harmless people. But there are 2% that might do harm. And so because of those 2%, we just exclude the whole lot. And say, don't talk to strangers. Well, that's exactly what the Jews did with the the Gentiles. They dismissed the the whole lot. They said, they're they're unclean. They're defiled. Stay away. Have nothing to do with them. And in so doing, then, then we are clean. We are holy. We are undefiled. But you see how they excluded the heart. Excluded their own hearts. In many ways, that was still true for Peter and many of the, the New Testament Christians. And so there was this radical shift for them, as well as us, that was needed for them to realize what God was doing. And that's exactly what we see with this, this awakening of God. And we see this vision that Peter has. As Peter was, was having it, we could see that it was a, a troubling vision, right? He had never eaten these types of meats before. You, know, you might understand that if you've ever gone on a, on a fast or if you have dietary restrictions. If you've forbidden certain types of food and then you, you try to bring them in, it's, it's kind of like you have to have this mental shift. Or perhaps 
maybe in a Christian dating relationship where sexual behavior is forbidden. And then on the wedding day, it becomes permissible. That is a a change. And so too, Peter is, is being told something that was absolutely forbidden is now allowable, and he's actually to engage in it. And in fact, three times he's told, rise, kill, and eat. And it seemingly seems that Peter said no three times. And so you can understand why it says in verse 17 of chapter 10 that he was inwardly perplexed. This is a a crisis of, of faith. And so we need to address this question, perhaps the question that you are, are thinking or should be thinking. Why this vision? Why, why a vision at all? Why didn't the Lord just say to Peter, hey, Peter, go to Cornelius' house and preach the gospel. Go preach the gospel to the, the Gentiles. Why did Peter need this vision of eating unclean animals it's a great question. Glad you asked it. It's a, it's a greater to lesser argument or a how much more argument. The Lord is demonstrating through this vision that the law of God, this was the law of God, the ceremonial law of God of eating that which is forbidden was fulfilled in Christ. And if it had been fulfilled in Christ, and thus change was needed, how much more a law of man, a man-made law, the exclusion of the Gentiles, needed to and must be changed. See, if God was willing to, to change, not that God changed, but God fulfilled his law, but let's say it for analogy's sake, if God was willing to change his own law for the inclusion of once excluded food, how much more change should man have to include people that were excluded, who were never meant to be fully excluded? Again, I I cannot overemphasize this enough. If God, who need not change, changes, fulfills his plan of revelation for the sake of the redemption of the world, how much more man who absolutely needs to change must fulfill and change their thinking, their lifestyle for the redemption of the world? Or perhaps let's make it a little more personal. How much more do you and I, who absolutely need to change, must change our thinking, our way of doing things for the redemption of the world. Now, I'm just going to warn you. I'm going to step on some toes here, so get ready. Put on your steel-toed boots if you need to. We all hate change. And I I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, no, no, that's not true, Pastor. I I like change. You might even say more change, the, the better No, we are okay with change as long as others change to us, change to our liking, change to 
our thinking. What we don't like is when we have to change for other people or their ways or their thinking or their likes. See, if change agrees with our change, our way of doing things, we're totally okay with that. But if change goes against our way or what we want, then watch out. And I hate to say it, but that is especially true in the church. So often in the church, we hear these things of, well, we want growth. We want development. We want improvement. But underlying all of that is, but we don't want to change. We like things exactly how they are. So don't touch any of it. We're okay with change, even want change, until someone comes to change what we like or our idea of what ministry should look like. And all of a sudden, then we don't like change anymore. Whenever you're wondering, who, who is it that he's talking about? Is he talking about a certain group? I'll tell you who I'm talking to. I'm talking to all of you. Because <laughs> this is true of all of us. And we shouldn't say, it ain't. And when you start talking about change in a church like ours, in a traditional Presbyterian church that delights itself in the past, in the rich roots of history as we should, some of you start to get a nervous twitch. I know you do. And that word change itself makes you uneasy. And listen, I'm not calling for wholesale change of who we are. So don't get too nervous. I'm about as vanilla of a Presbyterian as you can get. I preach in a robe for Pete's sake, okay? So settle down. It's all going to be all right. But what I'm saying is this. And we need to be very careful that we don't use our quote-unquote distinctives to exclude others. When we say, well, they're not reformed. They're not Presbyterian enough. Until they, they do, until they learn that secret Calvinistic handshake, we can't let them in, right? They don't do things the way that we do them. And well, we, we do them right. So we can just exclude or we can dismiss. I tell you, that's no different. It is no different than what the Jews did with the Gentiles. And that should scare us. Because I tell you, that's not reformed. That's not Presbyterian. That's not even Christian. That's a cult. That's an idol of the heart. That is not the work of God. Listen, the greatest commandment is not love reformed theology with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love Presbyterians as yourself. That is not Jesus' command, is it? It's to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. See, we're not wanting people to conform ultimately to us. We want people to conform to Christ. And so our theology and our belief ought to be driving us outward, not inward. Not inward to build greater and higher walls. And I understand the temptation because inward is safe. It's where we are comfortable. It's where we are insulated and we like insulated. We like to, to stay warm and, and cozy. And therefore, that means that I'm going to love those that look like me. I'm going to love those that think like me. And as much as outsiders are, are willing to change to, to me or change to us, then we will allow them in. 
Listen, if our ministry philosophy is truer and truer and pure and pure and fewer and fewer, then we got problems. Because the truer and truer and purer and purer is oftentimes us excluding others because they don't meet our standards. See, this outward look requires change, primarily of us. And it's uncomfortable. If you read this passage and think Peter was comfortable going to Cornelius' house, you have not read this passage rightly. In fact, it was perhaps very uncomfortable for him to do this. And yet he went because God commanded him to do so. And then when he had to go back to his Jewish brethren and explain, because this news spread quickly, and he was criticized for it. You did what with who? He had to explain it all over to them. And yet, what was his concluding remark? You read it in verse 17 of chapter 11. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way those words should be ringing in our ears see we're to partner with god for the expansion of the good news of jesus christ and if we're not we're standing in his way if we're just saying you know what i'm we're good lord we're good just the way that we are no more change is needed no more change is necessary we're safe we're comfortable That's a wrong attitude. And the Lord will convict us and he will prod us and he will goad us because he will not stop until his kingdom goes to the ends of the known world. The Lord is never calling us to comfort. He's calling us to follow him and to be obedient to him. And the question is, are we? Are we working? Are we partnering with the Holy Spirit? Are we impeding the work of the Spirit? Which means that we're just staying put. God has told us already to go into all the world and to make disciples. And that means that we're going to have to leave our bubble. We're going to have to leave comfortable situations and, and build relationships that most likely we would not want to. And go to places where it's going to be uncomfortable. It means that we need to be ever reforming as a a church. Again, according to the truth, never away from his truth, because the truth does not need to to change, but we need to change according to it. And that which is not tied to his word may need to change and must change. Listen to what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 9. And I, I think Paul was pretty good on his theology, right? We would say he was pretty straight. Yeah, what does he say? For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel." that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying? He says, I'm willing to change for the sake of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ going forth. 
And so if you say this morning, this is who I am, this is who I always will be, this is what I'll like and I'll always like, I will not change, then you do not have the spirit of Paul. You do not have the spirit of Christ. And in fact, we could be sinning against and grieving the spirit himself. See, the Holy Spirit is always going to propel us forward to do a work in us, just like he did in, in Peter sending him to Cornelius' house and the Jews out to the, to the Gentiles. And, and third, that, that brings about this welcome of God. The, the criticism of Peter was twofold, that he went into their home and that he ate with them, which means that he, he became like them. He put them on the same level as he was. Now, there's only one person on this earth who could have ever been criticized for that for stooping down, to going to a level that he should not have gone. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ, who stooped all the way down, who took on flesh, who ate with sinners and tax collectors, who came to serve and not be served, came to die, a death, death on the cross. The only one who was clean became unclean so that we who were truly unclean might become clean in Christ. Why? Why would Christ do that? He did so to welcome the sinner in. The sinner, namely you and me. To give us the forgiveness of sins. And the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ didn't say, you, you need to conform to all of these standards before I will let you in. Before I will accept you. No, he said, come. All those who are heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. Take your yoke, take my yoke upon you, which is light. Again, if Christ who had every reason to exclude each and every one of us did not, but has included us in the family of God, how much more ought we to invite and, and welcome the, the sinner in? I love what the Lord is doing in our midst. The change that we are seeing. I love the fact that there's people that are coming here that are saying, I have no idea what you mean when you talk about Reformed. And I can't even spell Presbyterian. I see the love of God in this place. Tell me more about it. Tell me about this Jesus in which you love and love so well. That's what I want to know. And I tell you, that doesn't happen magically. It happens by you going forth from this place, being a Christian in the workplace, being a Christian in, in your neighborhood, on your kid's t-ball team, Engaging people for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel and, and inviting them in, inviting them here, inviting them into your home, inviting them into your life so that they would see Jesus. I love the very last verse here that we read that when these Jews heard this, they, they fell silent. In many ways, they were convicted, convicted by the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit had done. And yet they glorified God. Saying then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Would God grant repentance of all 
unto life. I'll finish with this. So began talking about the, the immigration process and how arduous it is. There's, there's one way to speed up that process. And that is if you get married. If you marry into an American family, you become an American. And in the same way, if you marry Christ, then you become a Christian. And you enter into his family, you enter into his church, and it's no longer about those things that divided us. It's no longer about those things that we once were or even are now. It's no longer about Jew or Gentile or black or white or male or female or any other category that would divide or subdivide. And one question that we should be asking is, are you a Christian? Do you have your faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ? Are you living out your repentance in the the way that you live? And if so, then that's all that matters. That's more important than who you are and who you are becoming. Supersedes all of it. We are made one in Christ because Christ, the clean one, became unclean for our sake and he welcomed us in when he could have excluded each and every one of us and should have, but yet he included us in his family. And he is our God. And so what God has made clean, do not call common. Or to say it in another way, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, this is a convicting word to us. We feel the the poke and the prod of the Spirit, the the sword of God that that cuts and divides and shows our sin and shows our sinfulness. And Lord, we, we can so quickly as idealistic Americans look at this situation of the Jews and Gentiles and think, well, what's the big deal? Why why could they not understand? Why could they not be more like us? But the reality is, Lord, we in the same way have hearts that look at situations and and look at our surroundings and and want people to conform to who we are instead of, for the sake of Christ, being made like them so that we can be, like Paul says, all things to all men for the sake of the gospel. Lord, would we be made more like Christ? Would we conformed to Christ, who took on flesh, became one of us to save all of us. So too, O Lord, would we be willing to change those things that are not tied ultimately to your truth, not tied to your word, O Lord, but are just things that are preference, things that we like and, and don't want to see different. Lord, would we hold those things softly? Would we hold those things with an open hand, so to speak, so that those wouldn't be things that ultimately divide or separate or exclude. But Lord, would we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ be welcoming just as you have welcomed us in? Would we greet and would we meet and would we see everyone that we come in contact with as you would see them as a a fellow image bearer, one that you have made, one that you are doing a work in, O Lord? And would we in a small way, be a part of that. If it would be planting seeds or it would be watering or seeing the the true and full harvest through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, would that be the work of this church here in our midst? 
Lord, would you bring true Holy Spirit change, Holy Spirit revival within us. Lord, for we pray it for Christ and for the sake of his gospel and the extension of his kingdom. Amen.